Welcome to Deckert LIBORcast, where industry leaders come to talk LIBOR transition. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Deckert LIBORcast. This is the 18th in our series. I'm Chris Desmond, your host for today. I'm a partner in the global finance team here at Deckert and chair of our LIBOR task force. My co-host today is John Gaynor, an associate in the global finance team and also a member of the LIBOR task force. And today we're pleased to welcome back to the podcast our guest, Adam Schneider, a partner at Oliver Wyman, leader at the Oliver Wyman LIBOR platform and an ARC member and a friend of the firm. Welcome, Adam. Thank you very much. So, Adam, I just want to jump right in by saying, you know, we've had a big development in LIBOR replacement this month, which is our first leverage loan truly based on SOFR, which is the famed Walker and Dunlop loan. And I'd like to start there and really ask, you know, what did we learn from this loan? And, you know, what are we seeing in the market, I guess, as a result of it? Well, first of all, thank you, Deckert, and thank you, Christopher and Jonathan, for the opportunity to say hello and speak. I think it's at some level a little bit embarrassing that we are calling any loan a famous loan and that it is uh, kind of like so late in the day, uh, 75 days until the end of LIBOR when we're talking about like the first loan. Uh, But what did we learn? We've been saying for a long time that if you're going to price with SOFR, you're going to have to think about your increment to get people to be interested in the loan economically because the SOFR rate behaves differently and it essentially demands a higher spread than LIBOR from a customer payment point of view to cover the way SOFR behaves in volatile markets. So what we learned in this is that uh, this loan is well-known, well-advertised, and very visible. Uh, initially, I believe it was J.P. Morgan issued it with a fixed spread across various tenors, and the loan can switch between tenors at, I guess, borrower discretion. They've remarketed it now with a variable spread across tenors. The one-month spread is about 10 basis points. The three-month spread is about 25 basis points, which is very close to the arc historic spread. To say it the other way, a fixed spread across the curve did not work. The people who would be investing money in this product really needed to have an additional incremental return on SOFR. This is exactly what we would predict based on the behavior of SOFR compared to LIBOR. And of course, it behooves us to remember that the spot difference between SOFR and LIBOR is smaller in both cases. So you're basically seeing a richer SOFR loan compared to an equivalent LIBOR or other alternative LIBOR-like rate loan. So what do we think in terms of, you know, here we sit in October and LIBOR, in theory, transitions away on December 31st, that this is the first of our real LIBOR loans. What do we think in terms of non-LIBOR debt and SOFR issuance, you know, over the next couple of months? So I think you meant first of our SOFR loans, um, or not. First of all, let's, let's acknowledge that this is unbelievably embarrassing at many levels. Daily SOFR is three and change years old. Term SOFR was finalized in May and approved in July, late July, and we're days before the transition and we're talking about the first loan. So let's be realistic, it's embarrassing. Now flip it the other side, there's enough dislike of the SOFR rate that people are pushing business to LIBOR even as it ends. That's, as my mind, is the lesson. There's enough concern about putting your balance sheet on that rate and the pricing relative to that, that the system is really going about as slow as is possible. Now, does that mean that LIBOR lending will continue next year? Uh, Personal opinion, not a chance. LIBOR lending will end, LIBOR issuance will end, some existing things, of course, that are contractually obligated to will need to continue, 
but the market will in fact shift uh, probably well before year end because the fact of the matter is it takes six to eight weeks to close a loan. And if you're not trying to close non-LIBOR now, you're not going to make the date by the end of the year. Uh, so the institutions we talk to are active in their non-LIBOR plans. They have term sheets, they have contracts, they have uh, acceptable documents, they have operational procedures, they have technical procedures. Uh, they're turning them on now. The real question in the market is, well, what's the first name on the line? It shouldn't be LIBOR very, very soon. So is it SOFR? Is it term SOFR? Is it an alternate rate such as a Maribor or Bisbee? What's the first thing in the line is really the core question for a lot of institutions right now. And most of them have opinions and the opinions are not all the same. So there's an old saying that the cause and solution to all of your problems is money. How much of this do you think can be addressed just through pricing at this stage? And how much of this is really just a, a fundamental disconnect between the buy and the sell side on that side? Or how much of this is just a fundamental issue that we have right now in the transition away from LIBOR that the market's just not ready for? Great question. And I would agree that many things, not all can be dealt with from a money point of view. The core question from a lending, real lending point of view is not doing a loan at the time uh, that's immediate draw because the banks know how to manage that and hedge that, whether that's SOFR or term SOFR or Bisbee or Maribor, they know how to do that. The real question is undrawn lines of credit, which might get pulled during a time when the market is funky. It's a liquidity problem for the banks. They cannot create money when someone pulls a line of credit. So if you take a big uh, GSIB, the equivalent of 10, 15% of their balance sheet is undrawn at any point in time. And if you say there's a new crisis, another version of COVID or some other uh, thing that may happen, you could easily see for a big GSIB, 100, 200, maybe even $300 billion in almost immediate outflows and already committed contractual requirements that they're going to want to go do. Now, what we assumed would happen when we all started this is that if we're going to use so for a risk-free rate at a time of high risk, you would have to change the product to either charge more, especially on undrawn, or add fees, or add compensating balances, or about 10 different things you could do to really go on top of the product to make it equally effective. Uh, better floors are an example, and in fact, that be those better floors are in the deal you just mentioned earlier. So there's a lot of ways at a product level to go compensate for the fact that the rate is funky in uh, stress types. We have seen very little of that. It's actually one of our big surprises is that we haven't on top the products to take the reality of what those rates are going to be doing. We see more interest in just use a parallel rate, such as the Bloomberg Bisbee rate, which behaves more like LIBOR and it basically doesn't have the problem. More interest in using those types of rates than in on topping the products in different ways. And that is, again, both two ways to deal with the problem. One is money, as charge for more money in the circumstance you're worried about. And the other is use a rate that you think is more reflective of what your balance sheet needs to do to manage through. I think the first is more in the money category, Christopher, than the, than the second, but they're both in the same category of how do I protect my balance sheet from a spectacularly large draw uh, in a funky time. Before we get on to Bisbee and other kind of credit-sensitive rates, uh, we wanted to know what your thoughts were on headlines recently about the tremendous 40% drop of SOFR over the last few days from five basis points to three basis points. Yeah, I was asked about this twice today. And uh, frankly, I think we're really making a big headline over two basis points. Uh, LIBOR routinely moves by a few basis points every day. It has to. 
SOFR is subject to the vagaries of the Treasury repo market, which has all kinds of interesting vagaries. And it, it will move in accordance with that market, period, paragraph, the then. Remember, its usage is typically averaged. So two basis points for one day down, up one day the next day, whatever may well happen. We'll actually go into an average rate for the daily set of calculations. Um, I think we should simply say, hey, they actually let it trade as opposed to pin it at five basis points for months on end, which is equally artificial. And we should expect that there'll be daily volatility and manage our pricing against that to be comfortable with that. But again, little impact on any average use. I suspect little impact on the term market as well. It's only two basis points. It's simply, you know, big percentage-wise on a very, very, very small number. I was hoping to talk about some credit-sensitive rates right now. There's been a lot of discussion and attention focused on Bisbee over the last few months as a result of challenging statements from various regulators uh, and, and almost targeted, you know, focus on Bisbee specifically. You've mentioned it as a potential way for people to solve the pricing issue, and I was wondering, like, do you feel that Bisbee is a viable replacement rate at this stage? If not, what needs to happen? And if you think Bisbee will pick up in the next couple of months? So it's very clear that the construction of SOFR is very, very, very strong. It's a steel beam. It's great. The construction of any other rate, I think, globally is not as strong. Just you have to accept that as fact. And if you are solely concerned with the construction, it wins. If you go to the next thing, the construction of the term rate, in my opinion, much weaker. Based on futures, not really a term, really the future value of a daily rate. And futures, of course, are highly leveraged products. So there's a lot of energy. There's a lot of contracts being traded, which is great. But it is a highly leveraged product and it's not the same as that daily repo trillion dollars a day. When you get to something like Bisbee, you have to say, okay, does the construction make sense? And on a normal market basis, when banks are funding themselves with commercial paper and, and CDs, you would say, well, that's $20, 60000000000 billion a day. That kind of makes a lot of sense. That's the marginal rate of funding versus the marginal rate of lending, which was the theory behind some of the LIBOR items. Um, so what's wrong with that from a regulatory point of view? They've identified one thing, and I'll add a second thing, and then we'll talk about what to think about that. The regulators are saying, what happens if and when that dries up because the market is funky? Good question. And by the way, there's no regulatory regime in the U.S. that requires an answer. So Bloomberg can simply do what it wants to go do. And in fact, there's a consultation about that right now, about what they should do and how they will think about that process that is due, I believe, November 1. The second question that is a little more subtle Bisbee is made up of all these transactions. I am very, very fond of the fact that it is customer to bank and not bank to bank. So there's over 30 banks and any number of customers, and therefore any version of collusion and manipulation just feels very hard when all is said and done because of the number of participants and the fact that it isn't bank A and bank B agreeing we should raise rates. It's people who would lose versus people who would gain reaching a market, which I prefer. The underlying question is, well, you know, everyone who did that trade knew what LIBOR was. So they just traded a LIBOR, which is why Bisbee equals LIBOR and why LIBOR equals Bisbee. And what actually occurs when we knock out LIBOR in a couple, well, 18 months plus end a year 
And does the Bisbee race still kind of have validity at that point in time? And I think that's a, a not an immediate question, but a fair question. Back to the question about what to do with that, about that. If you have a large-scale balance sheet and are deciding that your 25% of your balance sheet or so that's in LIBOR needs to be in a different rate, that is a very material decision. And I think we can prove that it was not well adjudicated for many years because you left it in LIBOR. You left it in a rate that was under tech, going away, had bad fallbacks. You wrote no better fallbacks. You really didn't think about the problem anywhere in the system as near as I can go tell. Name an institution that said, that LIBOR is going to be terrible. We'll get out first. And, and the answer is a null set. So you now have to have an adjudication process over. So what do I want to have? Your consumer business, to the extent that is variable, is inevitably going to be daily SOFR, maybe term, based on how those markets are working out. Your commercial lending business, you will have a set of choices. I wouldn't get off of SOFR, term SOFR, without being able to document why, how, what the fail case is, what the forward liquidity implications are, which, as I said earlier, is the big issue, and therefore why any type of different rate is appropriate and is reasonable and as per kind of the various OCC and Fed guidance is a reasonable match between deposits and assets and kind of clears the bank in a reasonable way. To walk in and say, I use this rate because Bank X did is probably going to be frowned upon as opposed to thump. Here's why our document says we should be using a rate. Here's the percentage of the balance sheet we expect to be on SOFR over time, on term over time on Bisbee, Ameribor, whatever comes next of a time, and have it be a planned management decision rather than kind of an accident of history like LIBOR was. So do I think it's a safe rate? Frankly, yes, to be very clear. But I do think that using it should be an overt decision, kind of in the ALM category, as opposed to an implied we always use LIBOR thing like is more current now. Uh, you had said that uh, SOFR is a steel beam, um, but you know not everything needs to be a steel beam. Like we eat our dinner off of you know glass or ceramic plates, sometimes even paper plates, right? You use the right tool for the right job. Now, with all of this focus on Bisbee, what do you think about the other rates like Ameribor or AXI or the Bank Yield Index? Do you think there are clear use cases for those? Um, do you have a sense of whether we'll see adoption of those rates or do they have any unique benefits? We're seeing adoption of Ameribor, especially around people who trade on that exchange, because there's a legitimate use case that says, I'm buying and selling funds in that exchange, that's their valid rate. We are not seeing adoption of AXI, because while I love the concept, it doesn't exist yet and you can't license it, so it's hard to adopt. Um, I would note that AXI is also a unique number across the curve. That's the intention of AXI. And that's the exact circumstance that just didn't work in that one JP Morgan loan, where one number across the curve didn't work. Although I guess a higher number, if you always use the higher number, it would work fine. Bank yield index is also not yet available. The market rate, crits and critter, uh, critter being the rate and crits being the spread, also not yet available for licensing. So no, no one is planning on using a rate not available for licensing at this point in time. But Ameribor in use, Bisbee in use, and right now, mid-October to late October, people begin to flick over their term sheets to what they do want to use, regardless of what that, whatever that word would be. That is happening in real time as we speak. So I want to take a brief left turn. You know, we've been talking about new contracts, and I want to talk about legacy contracts. And we've all heard a lot about legislative solutions as a possible savior for legacy contracts. And 
for market participants who, for whatever reason, aren't able to transition their products off of LIBOR before it goes away. And now, over the last couple of weeks, we've been seeing some developments in the proposed legislative solutions, both at the federal level and in New York. Um, John, can you give the audience a quick rundown of what's been going on and, and what's in and what's out? Well, sure. So we have the New York State legislative solution that's law in effect, uh, and we have pending federal legislation, and we have a self-imposed October 31st deadline, which is supposed to give rulemakers enough time to put uh, actual uh, implementing regulations in effect for any potential federal legislation. I am bearish on whether or not that October 31st deadline gets met, given the number of other priorities happening on Capitol Hill right now, but I am by no means an expert in that area. What is in the text of the federal legislation compared to what is in the New York legislation is relatively similar. The contracts and instruments that are covered, though, are those without effective LIBOR replacement provisions. So it's only those documents which were drafted, as Adam was saying, with like no contemplation of LIBOR going away. The fact is that the vast majority of commercial contracts, especially ones that were originated after 2017, all have some sort of, or the vast majority have some sort of LIBOR replacement provisions in them. So the federal legislation and the New York legislation both don't generally touch them. The only potential use case might be where a decision maker has some sort of discretion to pick a rate, and in, if they pick the government, uh, the ARC recommended rate or the the rate you know selected by the Fed between the two options as applicable, then they might get a safe harbor for uh, liability for picking that rate, but. Nobody should be thinking, in my opinion, that they're relying on the federal legislation for most commercial deals today. I'd like to add in something, Jonathan, just to broaden it a bit. I think it's important to remember that we started with the hard end of this year date in all currencies and all LIBORs. And what we ended up with is most of the important U.S. tenors continue for another 18 months past the original deadline uh, in the U.K., Tough Legacy gets a magical synthetic LIBOR uh, that could be renewed every year, but in fact can be go as long as 10 years, which is a little bit different than having a deadline of the end of the year. Uh, the yen has a, a verbally stated, well, written statement uh, that there'll be a one-year extension on the uh, synthetic side. So we've seen that the regulatory powers have blinked around this subject in many different ways. And of course, the U.S. side has the legislation in terms of dealing with the tough legacy, because frankly, no one really wants to overrule the contracts. They simply want a good economic answer. And you're seeing the dollar, the pound, and the yen go towards the thing. If you read today's news, the euro and the Swiss franc are getting essentially a legislative force fit as well. So all five currencies are having some version of a legacy, call it legislative or extension force fit to kind of deal with the problem because in fact it was not so solvable. If there's no party you can agree, you can't solve the problem. You're just going to break break things. And all the five currencies are having some version of that go on right now. Well, what's a little bit interesting about what's going on in, in New York at least is that because of the extension that we've gotten for some of the tenors past December 31st of this year, we're going to get kind of a, a preview of how this is going to work for a couple of the, the less used tenors because we're going to have, in theory, assuming it goes forward, New York legislation that applies to the lesser used tenors as of January 1, and we'll see for a couple of years or a year and a half, I suppose, how that works before all of a sudden the same solution in theory 
would be enacted for the more used tenors, the one month, the three month. And to be clear, Christopher, just because you know the legislative answer doesn't mean that there's a party who can enforce it or knows it or agrees, right? At the end of the day, if you are uh, an investor in this product, it is not up to you to pick the answer. <laughs> you are hoping that's the answer they pick. And presumably you're modeling what answer you're going to get, regardless of whether it's legislative or some complicated set of words that we need lawyers for. But, you know, someone has to be able to say that'll be the new number. I don't know who administers Drexel's bonds anymore, but th that's the type of thing that is actually in the marketplace that, you know, you have to uh, have a sense of what they will go do. The legislative area, especially around the uh, safe harbor, is spectacularly useful uh, for those cases. But you still, we still have no mechanism to know what that is until it happens, which is really astonishing. On that note, one thing I thought was a really interesting difference between the New York legislation and the federal legislation that's pending, um, the federal legislation has a provision that says it's effectively self-operative, whereas the New York legislation requires the decision maker to do something to actually make it apply. Um, and how that plays out, who knows, but it, it's just a big tangled and the differences between the two, um, because it will apply, the federal legislation presumptively is not applying to one week and two months, at least the last draft that I saw. Not unless it passes. <laughs> Fair and, point, and, too. And I want to be clear, just because you know the answer doesn't mean the downstream can go deal with it. If I'm doing a daily net asset value for a fund, I need to know like what that item is to do my daily accrual. I don't just need to know a rate in 90 days. I need to know what it is at the moment that it flips off the rate. And a lot of that downstream operational process is not exactly well-defined. So I guess the kind of one question that's on my mind is someone living through this uh, transition process, working with a variety of folks, is this going to be better in 2022, in your view? So in 21, we had the fixing of ISDA spread. There won't be a term sofa. There will be a term sulfur. We approved term sulfur. We approved it for fallbacks. We won't have a legislative solution federally. We will have a federal solution. Uh, the FCA needs powers. The FCA got powers. And we have actual answers, by the way, a little late in the game, Mr. and Mrs. FCA. And we've had the rise of the alternate rates. Uh, really a lot of regulatory attacks, maybe that's an unfair word, attacks against the alternate rates. So the drama has been pretty good for this year. I mean, you know, like, like it's been a pretty, if you, if this is like the fourth season of LIBOR, like on Netflix, we've had a pretty good season. I think it's inevitable we will have some really serious glips at the end of the year going into next year. The discontinued tenors, the other four discontinued effectively currencies, the lack of liquidity in the hedge markets as people try to undo and replay their hedges, uh, and the rise of a series of operational things as kind of things flow through the snake and kind of get from the what should we do to the getting it done. But I don't think there are more core decisions to be made. I think it's kind of like, okay, what did we do to ourselves and how do we get out of this mess again a few times in a few different markets? I think the thing that will be most surprising is the first thing there, I don't know, you know, we don't trade, we're not a trading organization, 
but if the big institutions can issue LIBOR, it strikes me that LIBOR liquidity will dramatically decrease. The number will still be produced every day. But if you need to roll swaps off your balance sheet, I don't know where they go. I don't know how they're handled. And I worry that the pricing of those swaps will get very, very funky and affect some of the outcomes in the uh, you know, investment markets, cash markets, insurance company balance sheets, that type of thing, as a, as a real problem. And I, the rest of it feels like a lot of work to do, but not necessarily quite as topsy-turvy as 21 has been. So, so Adam, I, you know, I'd like to know we had you on at the end of 2020 to predict how things were going to go in 2021. And here we are approaching the end of 2021, talking about 2022. I'd like to hope that we're not doing this, you know, next Thanksgiving and, and talking about how things are going to go in 2023. But the jury's definitely still out on that. Um, you know, if, if you had to predict, I'm just going to go around on a panel and, and ask, what do we think the last Deckard Library cast will be? What, what do we think the date's going to be on that? When do we think this is going to be done? So it's always difficult to speak to a law firm about things that might result in litigation. <laughs> but the legal community has been predicting massive litigation over LIBOR transition since the moment it was announced. I think that was the next sentence. Andrew Bailey says, and the next sentence was massive litigation. So I think you might be going for a while if, in fact, there is uh, unfair outcomes in the minds of investors and uh, borrowers. And I won't predict that, but it's certainly possible. And it, it's felt like it's been possible now for north of four years. Will there be outcomes that people don't understand guaranteed because no one has understood this yet, near as we can go tell? Uh, is it that big a deal that people care? You know, it's only a few basis points when all is said and done as a practical matter. Might you get class actions in the consumer side, TBD? Might you get investors who think they've been harmed, TBD? I'll give you a real-world example, if I may. Uh, Canadian bond owned by a U.S. insurance company. They thought it was six-month LIBOR until they opened it up and realized it was a rate that was obsolete that they replaced with six-month LIBOR. Is the fallback last LIBOR the last LIBOR rate? Or is it the last old rate that was much higher? And who adjudicates that? And forget federal legislation, it was issued in Canada. So like, I don't know. They don't know what it's worth, and I don't know what it's worth. We flagged the issue, and they could deal with it. But there's plenty of potential for Decker to continue to libel cast for another decade if <laughs> this becomes a set of litigation efforts. On that really optimistic note, I'd like to thank Adam for joining us, and thank you to our audience. We hope you enjoyed listening. Be sure to check out our LiveWorkCast channel to hear insightful discussions with market participants, including regulators, trade associations, and industry leaders about the work ahead in the LIBOR transition. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. <laughs>